You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at 21st Folio, that's 21, the number, S-T-F-O-L-I-O, or online at 7th-row.com, that's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to add a little addendum to episode five when we discussed the two productions of Coriolanus with um, Ray Fiennes and Tom Hiddleston. I've been feeling like we were a bit rough on the Josie Rourke-Tom Hiddleston production, uh, especially considering that at least uh, M.A. and I really liked it. So I wanted to give a bit of context for these productions that I think is somewhat missing from the episode. Um... The Hiddleston production was recorded live about two months into the three-month run of the show at the Donmar. So it wasn't entirely fair to compare his interpretation with that of Ray Fiennes, who had played the part on stage for about a year, both in London and in New York City, before he adapted it for the screen. Uh, So Fiennes comparatively had much more time to practice on stage in front of an audience and play with the part than Hiddleston did. And then when he actually, because it was a film, he had a lot more control than Hiddleston did of just the pace and the timing um, by virtue of the fact that it wasn't a live show. So just to clarify, I think Tom Hiddleston is actually really great in Coriolanus. I'm just not entirely sure I agree with all of the choices he and Josie Rourke made in the production, which we discussed in full on uh, episode five. The other point of business is that on Saturday, April 23rd, we celebrated the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. Uh, We've been tweeting all about that and you can find links to interesting articles on our Twitter feed. Uh, But I wanted to draw special attention to the fact that Ontario's Stratford Festival will be broadcasting to cinemas last year's production of Hamlet, which we talked about extensively in episode one about the Cumberbatch Hamlet. It'll be in April and May in the US and in Canada. We also wanted to recommend checking out the broadcast of last year's Pericles, also from the Stratford Festival. We'll put links to dates and locations for these, as well as our reviews of last year's shows in our extended show notes for this episode on our website. So in today's episode, it's the first of our two-part discussion of the recorded production of Margaret Williams's Hamlet, starring Maxine Peake. We'll be back on Friday with the second part of our discussion, and then next Monday, with a very special interview with Maxine Peake herself on playing the part. The production is going to be screening in cinemas across the U.S. starting on April 28th in L.A., and it'll be playing select dates, so make sure you don't miss yours in your local area over the next couple of weeks. If it is not coming to a cinema near you, it is available on DVD. I believe you can buy it off Amazon. We're going to do yet another Hamlet episode. This time we'll be talking about the production of Hamlet from that, that started at the end of 2014 and ran until mid, like March, April 2015. Um, it stars Maxine Peake 
as Hamlet, and it was at the at Manchester's Royal, Royal Exchange. Um, and over the course of three nights of the production, it was recorded and then edited together into uh, like a film of the production. And so we're going to be talking about the film of the production, which is going to be airing in cinemas, I believe, across North America, definitely in the U.S. in May. So I'm your host, uh, Alex Heaney. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Seventh Row. You can find me on Twitter at BWestCineast, B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. My guests today are Laura Ann Harris. Hi, my name is Laura Ann Harris, and you can find me at www.lauraannharrisandwithanee.com, and I'm a playwright, director, performer, living in Toronto, Ontario. And we've also got Caitlin Merriman. Hi, I'm Caitlin Merriman, and you can find me on Twitter at Caitlin Snark, that's C-A-I-T-L-I-N-S-N-A-R-K. And our first-time guest as far as um, episodes that have actually aired, but uh, Leslie was, in fact, on our unaired pilot episode that you will never hear. <laughs> um, Leslie Peterson. I'm Leslie Peterson. I'm a professor of English at the University of North Alabama, and I research and teach Renaissance drama, and I perform whenever I can. Right. And Laura and Leslie have both actually been in and possibly directed Shakespeare? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. I, I played Gonzala in a production of The Tempest in Winnipeg in 1998. So I have uh, some personal experience with gender switching roles and was very interested in seeing something similar happening with the character of Polonius in this play. Okay, great. So generally, what did everybody think about the production? I absolutely love, I absolutely loved it. Absolutely. <laughs> I, yeah, I was really going in very skeptical, actually. I did not know what to expect from a female playing Hamlet. I mean, I've, I've heard of other productions where it's been done, of course, but I was totally mesmerized by her performance and I, I loved it. I really enjoyed heaps of it. Uh, I thought some of the gender stuff was really good. There were, some moments, some things that I think could have been done better, and there were some choices that I was quite confused by. And I'm not <laughs> wild about the way they did Ophelia uh, in parts, but um, overall I thought it was very good and quite enjoyable. Uh, really interesting choices, definitely. I really liked it a lot too. I thought that um, a lot of the choices that they made worked very well along with the decision to excise the Fortinbras subplot. So I think that that decision contributed towards um, the overall coherence of the play in ways that might not necessarily have, have happened automatically. So I was, I was impressed by that. Maxine Peak was stunning. I think that there were some things that were gained, but unfortunately some things that were lost by the the staging that was done to accommodate the theater and the round. And it was definitely worth watching. And, and uh, it gave me some, some really new ideas about some of the different ways that individual lines could mean, um, because there were some very uh, new readings of certain lines that I was very excited by. Like what? 
Well, for instance, um, when Polonia is talking to Ophelia in their first scene together, Act 1, Scene 3, when Ophelia is defending Hamlet's intentions and says, you know, he hath importuned me by all the holy vows of heaven, and Polonius rebukes her with an assertion about, I do know about how prodigal the blood burns or something. I'm not getting the line exactly right. And I've always read that as a kind of a confession that that Polonius was a a guy in his youth who would, you know, lie to women to get into their pants, basically. But when, when, when that those, that line is in a woman's mouth, Polonia, she said it with anger and, and, and that worked really well. I liked that a lot. And I thought that, uh, I've never heard Hamlet's line, my father, methinks I see my father make so much sense as it did the way Maxine Peake delivered it. So those are just a couple of early examples. Yeah. Yeah, I I thought Maxine Peak was terrific um, mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, I, I mean, I have a few caveats, but that's like sure. single <laughs> Hamlet. And I guess the thing I didn't mention was that there were that there are that you sort of alluded to is there's a bunch of gender swapped roles. Mm-hmm. Marcellus is Marcella, Polonius is mm-hmm. Polonia, the Player King is played by a woman, and is it Rosencrantz that's a woman or Guildenstern? Yes, Rosencrantz. It was Rosencrantz, yeah. So I really liked, yeah, I really thought Maxine Peake was great. And mm-hmm. um, I thought what they did with genders, particularly with mm-hmm. Polonia, was very interesting. And I, I think I would generally say that the, the I thought there were a lot of interesting choices that made me think. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's very good and definitely worth seeing. It's it's difficult because we just, last week, we went through the David Tennant, Greg Doran, oh. Hamlet with Patrick Stewart as Claudius. And like, I it's just, a... Stunningly good. It's, it's just, yeah, yeah, brilliant. I, I think I'd never really felt just how crucial Claudius is and how important mm. he is to the world building. Mm-hmm. And I think that this production suffered from a kind of mediocre or like, okay, not mediocre, mm-hmm. like he was fine. He just wasn't amazing, Claudius. And then mm-hmm. the, the world building for it suffered as well yes. because of that. And just the, the tenant RSC production, the line readings were just so flawless all the way through yeah. that mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's so weird to watch another production where it wasn't quite as consistently kind of mm-hmm. perfect. Um, so I, yeah, I, I feel like if I'd just had another couple of weeks in between the two, I would have changed <laughs> how I saw the, this one. Oh, it's yeah. funny. I, I mean, I obviously haven't heard of that other production, but I'm going to have to check that out now. Um, which is great. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, Going back to just some of the line readings that you mentioned before, Leslie, uh, you know, it's interesting. I liked the switches that the actors made within the lines and the sort of every, every single switch was really well manipulated. There's yes, a moment of cunningness and a, and a moment of, of power and, mm-hmm. and a moment of silliness. I mean, I've, I've, I've actually not seen that very often. I mean, they were taking quite a bit of risk. And I really loved that. It was it made it very alive for me. Yes, I loved it too. I'm I'm especially thinking of some of the points where they actually were playing against the meaning of the line in, yeah. in some ways yeah. that were really exciting. Like yeah. when when Hamlet kisses Ophelia passionately at basically at the same time. Not that you can talk and kiss at the same time, but you know kisses her passionately and says, "I loved you not." I and mean, it, it, it was stunning, and it was. Mm-hmm cruel and it was crazy and it worked so well yeah 
Um, I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting about these line readings is the speed at which they're delivered because yes. at the very beginning, it's, it's very, very fast. So mm-hmm, whatever yeah. the, uh, the equivalent of like dexterity is for, <laughs> um, vo- vocal work, it, it was like, you know, it's hard to talk that fast, let alone talk that fast with nuance and speak Shakespeare. Um, mm-hmm. and I felt like the beginning really, really moved because of it. And I think also, I know, People I've heard, I've definitely heard like directors talk about this when they're talking about Shakespeare, that sometimes it's easier to understand Shakespeare when you say it quick, quickly, mm-hmm. that it just sounds more, I don't know, that it's just easier, even if you miss certain words, that it's just easier to understand. And I certainly felt like it just kind of moved really well. And, mm-hmm. and we just, you know, went quick, quick, quick to the next scene. But then it sort of started to slow down by the midway point. And I'm not entirely, like, I'm not entirely sure what the purpose of the fast to slow was. I'm kind of wondering what people thought about that. Cause I thought one of the nice things about the fast, it being fast at the beginning was almost this idea of like things moving faster than Hamlet can keep up with. And that yes. his indecision and his, that he just, you know, he's, things are going, are, are moving before he can even get around to doing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. No, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, but it, I'm wondering if it might have something to do with the need to create a sense of not only urgency and lack of control in that mm-hmm. way, but at lack of inner control with Hamlet. Because when you, when you take out the Fortinbras subplot and you don't have that two month gap between act one and act two, that sometimes that can be a problem because in a lot of productions, Hamlet is very different in Act Two from he is from how he is in Act One because he's had two whole months of practicing his mad act and getting you know taken over by it in some ways. And how Denmark has had two months of waiting for the news from 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 Norway, but here we just there's no time allowed and there's no time needed. And this Hamlet is on the verge of insanity right from the very first second we see him. So that that speed works really, really well because everything is already about to to fall apart and to crack in him. We don't have that something is rotten in the state of Denmark. That's never really convincingly dramatized for me. That line was almost a throwaway, really. But yeah, yeah, but there's definitely yeah. something wrong in the state of Hamlet right from the very first second we see him. And I think that the pacing really helps compensate for uh, and helps justify and works very well with that streamlined plot. Um, yeah, I really I love that sense that if, even if Hamlet isn't necessarily mad from the get go, mm-hmm. it's that sense of instability all the way through that like even when Hamlet's switching between playing you know, the antique disposition mm-hmm. and just sort of speaking to the audience or speaking to his friends, there's still this real sense of instability and it, and it just makes this kind of like, I felt myself kind of tense all the way through, just like not quite knowing where they were going to go, what they were going to do. And I thought it was quite good, you know, like it, it, it is tense. I think it should be tense. So yeah, I thought that was really well played. I noticed that the, um, the camera angles, start to change about halfway through as well. We get a lot more of those God's eye view shots from, mm-hmm. from above the stage 
And I'm just wondering if that has any connection with the slowing down of the pace, if there's a general kind of change in in mood or style. Are things getting more weighty or significant? I don't know. Well, I, I wanted to speak to the slowing down. I mean, I, I don't know about the perspective of the camera, but I found it really interesting that they ripped the floor halfway through and they exposed <gasps> the wood. So for me, I wondered if it was going back to that tradition of theater. Maybe it was also in in regards to um, going, I mean, it's going deeper into the character of Hamlet and going deeper into his vulnerabilities. Maybe that's why the pace slows down a bit. It's a bit more self-reflective. I'm just trying to grapple it at, at the slow pace as well. I mean, because at the beginning, it's all action, 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 action. And maybe things slow down a bit because we're starting to see things slowly unravel for him. One of the things I think that fast pace also highlighted for me, which I think is also to do with just more general world building things, where I guess this Claudius is not like an iron fist exactly. And you don't, well, I mean, I'm interested to see what people think about the surveillance state because we do have, the audience is surrounding the stage, but then there isn't really much discussion or acknowledgement of surveillance but I guess I never really thought about like how silly Hamlet's plots are. And I feel like this production really highlights it. Like Hamlet is like, I've got to kill Claudius. Well, step one is I'm going to pretend to be crazy. And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I yeah. think especially towards the end, like Hamlet keeps telling people, I'm not really mad. I'm not really mad that that's the first time that I ever thought like, Oh, you know, um, the lady doth protest too much. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I never thought of it that way before because obviously Hamlet is unstable and shaking from the beginning. Right. His plot to act mad makes a lot less sense in the absence of a surveillance state or in the absence of a posse of armed guards surrounding Claudius everywhere he goes. Yeah. Um, You know, if Claudius is a threat to Hamlet, then then it makes sense for Hamlet to find a way to throw Claudius off, to try to convince Claudius that he himself, Hamlet, is no threat, no danger, that he can be dismissed. But when when this Claudius is less scary, then Hamlet's strategy does seem absurdly convoluted. You're right. And I mean, also the the play, Hamlet's like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to, you know, I'm really going to get Claudius. I know. Let's put on a play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I mean has read, certainly read in the tenant Hamlet and also Rory Kinnear's Hamlet is the surveillance state was very clear and it was like he couldn't say anything and the only way Mm -hmm. he could do it. I mean, in the tenant one, it was also kind of a, they, they also suggested that it was kind of a silly plan, but. There was certainly more of a, there was certainly more threat and more like he can't speak openly. And so this is his, you know, only recourse. Mm. Whereas here it seemed almost like, like Hamlet just like really doesn't want to kill Claudius. So he's Mm. like, I know I'll be crazy. I know I'll put on a play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. And that the fact that there were like the the children uh, in the player's company, really, I thought, uh, just emphasized how silly it was um they were so adorable and it was just like the moments where you saw Hamlet like kind of uh encouraging them and like kind of being playful with them and I was like Uh wow yeah yeah it's great like he's being played as like quite young and and just he has no idea what he's doing 
I would like to make a connection between that and the movement of the to be or not to be soliloquy. Would that be okay? Or do you want me to wait till later? No, to, go for it. Okay. Well, I liked the movement of the to be or not to be soliloquy to where it is, partly just because it gives us another context for the soliloquy, which gives us a, another way of understanding it. But I think when you take out the Fortinbras ham, uh, subplot, you're taking out the only significant act for uh, soliloquy, which is, you know, Hamlet, how all equations do inform against me. So I think we need a soliloquy towards the end of the play. And so the, yeah. putting the to be or not to be gives the play a bit more balance there. But it also, by having him deliver that right after he's killed Polonius, mm. I really get the sense that he has understood the reality of death for the first time. And so he's not only processing his own longing for death, but he's coming to terms with his own mortality. And, 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 and then it, it, it's followed so close by his speech to Horatio that the readiness is all, if it be now, tis, tis not to come if it be not to come then tis now or however that goes that it it those two speeches work together almost uh, in tandem in a way that i've never seen them do before and it gives him a very immediate and intense reason for delivering the soliloquy that i really liked i couldn't agree more with you actually i I, yeah, you kind of stole the words out of my mouth because I oh, felt, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good. I feel that that gave that soliloquy for me a lot more depth actually. And, mm-hmm. and also the fact that he has blood on his body and, yes. and he's holding this gun. And I mean, I literally was like, wow, this is amazing to me because I've never seen the speech done this way, obviously. And for me, it really touched me in a different way that than I've ever heard the speech done before because it, yeah, it made perfect sense. You know, he's contemplating his own mortality after he just killed his uncle or aunt in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was it was it it totally made sense to me. And I, I'm wondering if you know if I ever directed a production of Hamlet if I would do it the same way because for me it, it really. Yeah, I, I had a more emotional connection to the moment. It what it, it also humanizes Hamlet. I've always seen him as getting well. He does get really ruthless towards the end, and of course, we lost again the soliloquy where he says, "From this time forth, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth." And he does move from this horrible first murder of Polonius to the really cold, calculated, dreadful execution of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And in some ways, we lose a little bit of, uh, of the, that sense of his, him, his character, maybe losing a little bit of, of its humanity. And, it, but it makes his killing of Polonia much more sympathetic, much more, I feel much more compassionate for him. Yeah. I think because a lot of the times you see it played and he's like, oops, Polonius is dead. Oh, well. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And then, you know, and then he's making jokes about, you know, you don't have to rush. Yes, he will wait for you in the lobby. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, the the way they played that scene with uh with him sort of turned away and just convinced that that he'd 
just call, killed Claudius and then yes. turns around and sees that it's Polonia and is like, oh, no. I thought that was, uh, that was really well done, really interesting way of playing it and just raised the stakes quite a lot for that scene because, I mean, we all know it was coming, but but Hamlet kind of convinced me that, that he didn't know it was coming. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good it. way for me to make the transition to um, discuss, to sort of saying – one of the interesting things about putting to be or not to be in act four is I wasn't expecting it to come that in fact I was watching, I was being a bad viewer and tweeting to Caitlin while I was watching it. And I mean, I were at the closet scene and I'm like, what happened to, to be or not to be, are they going to cut this from the entire play? And so when it finally came, it was almost unexpected. Like at that point I was, you know, it was after intermission. I was ready. I was just like, okay, so they're being bold. They've cut it. And I think, that's an interesting way of making it fresh, quite apart from just the fact that what all of the things that you guys all said that I agree with um, about it giving us a new way of looking at it, that it was, it's, it's not like, okay, here comes to be or not to be. And there it is. And I mean, and I say this in the context of, so we've done, we've recorded at this point, two other episodes about Hamlet and none of them have put to be or not to be in the quote unquote expected place. And I don't even just mean the first folio place. I mean, they didn't even put it in the first quarter place mm. um when we talked about Lindsay turner's hamlet first of all in in previews for the production she put it at the beginning of the play it opened the play as a way of being like okay here it is let's mm. let's <laughs> not think of you know let's not have a big build up just to get it over with <laughs> just get it over with and then you know because it was benedict cumberbatch and critics all the critics were well, a lot of papers sent critics to the preview big no-no. Um, so it got, um, publicity for being, you know, such a stupid choice that she then moved it into act two, but not in the first quarter place of act two. It was somewhere. It was slightly different. It was after the, yeah, it was after the, um, words, 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 except my life, except my life. And then when we were talking about, we did the David Tennant production and that also moved it to a different place. It and abbreviated was, it significantly as well. There's quite a few lines cut from it in the David Tennant production. Right. Maybe you can remind me where it is again in the David Tennant. It's uh oh. they they cut that part of the play and like moved it around quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So in, in the David Tennant production it comes just before Hamlet uh the get thee to a nunnery bit mm-hmm. with Ophelia, and then after that comes Fishmonger etc so yeah it's, right uh, thank it's you it's been moved around quite a lot right so i mean it's <laughs> the kind of funny thing about it is now is sort of like the existential crisis of where it is to be or not to be <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah i say i think moving it out of that that first kind of third i guess of the play actually is a really uh really interesting choice i think it because there's so much action in that first third, I guess. And it kind of frees it up, like having to take a moment to stop and be introspective about life and the nature of consciousness is, uh, is quite difficult, I think, to pull off as, as a natural thing in the midst of all this, uh, hiding behind heiresses and running mm-hmm. back and forth and, you know, and so moving it later, especially to like such a, an emotional point as just after Polonius uh, is killed is like, it's it's a really really good choice, and I thought it was it was done very well. Yeah, I think this is something that both you are pointing out and that Leslie pointed out that one of the virtues of putting in Act Four is it gives Act Four 
something to do. Like um, a lot of productions of Hamlet, I think, run out of steam as soon as you sort of get to act four that you're just sort of waiting for everybody to die and they run out mm-hmm. of time. And that sometimes, you know, whatever the reason is that they haven't figured out what's going on in act four, they ran out of time in the rehearsals, which is what we suggest mm-hmm. thought maybe happened with the Lindsay Turner. And I think that, that that is actually still a bit of a problem in in this production that it it loses its focus and um, potency in, uh, you know, partway through act four. But this does sort of give act four a bit of a, a mm-hmm. leap. And I think one of the things that I really did love about the Greg Doran, David Tennant one is that I think it's the only production I've ever seen where act four, you're still learning completely new things about the characters and yes. Claudius is finally revealing himself. And it's like the first time that I was really, oh, act four is really important. No, act five is really important. Whereas even in this one, I was kind of like, okay, we're now in act four. Uh, well, here comes the stupid story about the pirates. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. We just get past the pirates. There's an hour and then they'll die. <laughs> yeah. They kept the pirates. I don't know. I know. <laughs> Why? <laughs> why? <laughs> I mean, we all know why in, in terms of the basic logic of Hamlet needing an excuse to come back to Denmark in express disobedience of Claudius's command. But then again, Claudius isn't that scary. So Hamlet doesn't really need an excuse in, in this world. So, but anyway. Well, no, but I think that's important because I, there's also, they cut some of the mentions of England, um, I think. Yes. Because there was a lot, it was discussed a lot earlier and Hamlet knew he was going to England before he goes and talks to Gertrude. Um, but not in this production. I think he finds out afterwards. And, Part of that is, I think you, you're sort of like, okay, so he's gone and then you don't really see him leaving and then, and then he's back and you sort of lose his absence as like an important thing. And God, now I'm becoming insufferable about Greg Doran the way I used to be about Nicholas Heitner. But, um, <laughs> but I think what was really great about that production is the way that you like see Hamlet in like a hat and going through the snowstorm that you really feel, Oh, he's coming back because he spent the first half complaining about Denmark being a prison. It was like, you could just go back to Wittenberg and you don't, you're not, you're going back to, you're going back to Elsinore, which you don't like. Mm. And I felt like in this one, it was just sort of like, Oh, we disappeared and he's come back and hasn't really gone through much. And now we're continuing. Like it didn't seem like it was sort of just a plot point as opposed to being an important, event i agree yeah I, I would agree with that i mean it didn't feel like a struggle like they didn't explore that with hamlet you know he wasn't he didn't go through something he just yep went came back <laughs> you know mm-hmm. yeah and somehow it, almost his surprise that ophelia has died in his absence is even less convincing because i never really felt like he that he had been gone <laughs> And then again, yeah. it's the, it's, it's that encounter with Fortinbras's captain on the way that gives Shakespeare a chance to really drive home to us the fact that Hamlet is leaving the country. Mm-hmm. And so, and so by choosing to cut that subplot, uh, you do make act four a lot harder to, to do. I mean, I think the other thing you lose too is going back to what I was saying about Claudius is you lose part of Claudius's character because one of the big differences between Claudius and Hamlet Sr. is that Claudius is a diplomat and Hamlet Sr. was a fighter. And since you Mm -hmm. lose the part of his first monologue about, you know, we're sending an ambassador off to Norway to, to solve this problem, 
mm-hmm. sort of lose something about his um, approach to leadership. And, you know, is he a good king, which I think is something that both, you know, even Lindsay Turner's production and all its flaws, it did raise an interesting question of, you know, maybe Claudius is actually a better king than Hamlet. Like maybe he really is. It's not just that he's, you know, taken a seat that doesn't belong to him, but mm-hmm. he he's actually a, a better king. And, and, you know, despite his, his villainy that maybe it's not so bad that he's in power. Mm-hmm. And well, and, and that leads me to ask the rest of you. I'm really curious to know what you think about the, the staging of act one, scene two, because it's not set in a throne room. It's set, around a, a, a dinner table, much more intimate, much more conversational. Of course, it's still formal. You connect that with the fact that Gertrude and Claudius are never wearing crowns. They have no insignias of office. Claudius puts a necklace around Gertrude's throat, which is a, you know, a gesture of, of love and commitment and, and wealth. And possession. Yes, absolutely. And it kind of echoes the necklace that Polonia is wearing, but that's another conversation that I'd like to get back to. Um, I think, oh, Polonia is the office wife. I get it. But, um, oh, yeah. But because it's a dinner table uh, and not a throne room, it's a scene that is supposed to really show us Claudius stepping into his power and performing it publicly in a really important way. And of course, also dealing with Polonius, but all of, all of Denmark is looking to him for, all right, can you, have you got this? And there's nothing for him to get. So it makes sense to put him at a table, but I'm just wondering what people think about what's gained and what's lost by that. I mean, I just want to add a slight interesting sort of caveat that what was interesting about, about it is, I wonder if Lindsay Turner stole this from it is that Lindsay Turner's production also had it at a dinner table, except in her production, it was a banquet table. Oh, and, and I, I missed that production. I'm sorry for. Yeah, no worries. It was, um, but it was in our, it was in our first episode and Claudius was dressed in military, um, white. What is it? Military dress whites. Like uh, sort yes. of like he was, he clearly had, a um, he had his military outfit, but it was also, as M.A. pointed out, was, you know, totally useless. Mm. And the ghost was in a tattered military uniform that had clearly been worn and was, you know, worn to battle and looked like it was something sensible. And so they had in some ways still given Claudius a sense of power by the costume, which you don't get here. And it was also more formal. It was interesting about both of them is they both place Hamlet in the middle of the table. And I think, and I said this about the Lindsay Turner one, I'll say it again about this one is I think one of the interesting things about putting it on a dinner table is that you actually force Hamlet into the fray. Um, because yes. very frequently the way this scene is staged is Hamlet is, and this was done in Greg Doran, this was done in Nicholas Heitner, it gets done all the time. It was done at Stratford's production of Hamlet last summer is that, um, Hamlet is off to the side always yes. and not part of the what's going on. And I'm not sure if this, if this dinner is like a celebration, because certainly in Turner's, there was an implication that it was implied that this, this was in fact the wedding banquet. Ah. Oh. oh, okay. Yeah. It was so decadent as well. Like it, it wasn't mm-hmm. like in, in this production, it, it was very bare, which is part of the style of the staging, I think. But mm-hmm. um, whereas in the Lindsay Turner production, it was just, it was, it, like 
furs everywhere and weren't there like antlers and stuff on the table and there's giant Mm. chandeliers and so it was it may not have been necessarily a show of power but it was definitely a show of wealth yeah so yeah it was a very ostentatious table with a big chandelier and yeah yeah and that's so consistent with what hamlet says about claudius later on in that first act that makes a lot more sense in some ways well and and in this dinner Claudius is the one who snubs Hamlet as he is in the script when he invites uh, Laertes to speak first. You notice how he passed over Hamlet's shoulder. He pats the people on either side of him, but doesn't pat Hamlet on the shoulder as he's walking back to his seat. But Hamlet doesn't get the opportunity to snub Claudius as he does in in the uh, the Doran production. But I was mostly troubled by having Horatio at the table. I thought that was quite wrong, actually. And then he had to leave uh-huh. and then come back. I mean, what do you think about the fact that it's physically placing Hamlet in between Claudius and his mother by virtue of the fact that they're at the heads of the table, which they were also in Turner's? Well, that also puts him across from Laertes. So I thought that that worked. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So- which they didn't do in Turner's because everyone was actually sitting on the same side of the table mm-hmm. facing out at the audience because it was a proscenium stage. Mm-hmm. Thank you for educating me about that production. Um, I just think I, it's interesting because they were done in such quick succession that they picked such mm-hmm. similar stagings. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I, the only thing I can add to this conversation, this aspect is for me, it kind of heightened the style of the production, which was, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about sound and what that did for me a little bit. I, it made it more of a familiar crime drama to me because the the jazz sound uh, transitions for me oh, yeah. gave it a sense of modern, almost noir kind of quality. And yes, um, so for me, with this with the staging in the at the dining room table, it didn't it made it less formal and more intimate and more about the family than presentational. And so, and for me, that was an ongoing theme in terms of the way the, the crime was approached, I guess, or the way that they approached the death of the King. Um, it was almost like this crime mystery drama with, and it was just the the transitions and even the costuming kind of suggests that to me. So that's sort of what I took from that scene. I agree. It's very much about the family. And 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 it has to be if you're going to take out Fortinbras. And if you want it to be about the family, you have to take out Fortinbras. So those decisions are all consistent with each other for sure. I mean, what do you think about – because Polonia has that puppeteering that she does of Laertes where she's feeding him lines and he's standing up to talk at the table. And does, is that helped by the sort of dinner table setting? Well, Polonius does that also in the uh, David Tennant production, doesn't he? You, you can see him, um, coaching his son there and mm-hmm. that's a more formal setting. But that's, yeah, I think I think you can see him like kind of mouthing along with Laertes mm-hmm. in the background, as if they rehearsed yeah. beforehand. Yes. Yeah. But I'm. A, is, is that avoiding your question, Alex? Sorry. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I I guess there's a few things that are going on in this scene because one is that you're also trying to establish who the characters are. Yes. Um, and so this does give the opportunity for Laertes to stand oh. up and make it clear, you know, and as Polonius. Yes. Says, well, Plonia is mouthing along that they're, you yes. know, 
related. And as you know, mentioned also that you get to see Laertes and Hamlet, you know, physically facing off. Mm-hmm. To me, one of the most stunningly effective consequences of that scene is simply that Polonia is sitting at the right hand of Claudius. Mm. That was one of the first things I noticed. I thought that was terrific. It just gave us so much information about the relationship between those two. I think that was, was that in the Turner too? Caitlin, do you remember? I think Polonius was sitting a bit further down the table, actually, Mm. in the Turner one. Yeah. Zayn, the other thing that is of interest to me is because you have all these people sitting, and this is something I complained about in Branagh's Henry V film, is does that sap and suck the energy away because they're all sitting instead of standing? And I accused Branagh's uh, uh, Henry V, the opening scene with Henry V, as being kind of still and losing Mm. energy because everybody was sitting around and the same with the people in France. And do you think that that has the same effect here or is it mitigated by the fact that, you know, the audience is 360 or hmm. is it even a problem? I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm. It didn't bother me because Claudius gets up and walks to the other end of the table and back and then Laertes gets up, but I'm not sure. Well, what. maybe that's a something of power to show something of power yes. too, because those, yeah. whereas Hamlet, you know, doesn't get to get up. Exactly. And if you, cut the whole Fortinbras thing, it's not that long a scene. <laughs> so it didn't bother me, but I, yeah. <laughs> if, I, if it bothered other people, I... Uh, I don't think it bothered me. I think actually they had a lot of people sitting in this production and it still didn't feel static to me. Well, that's because they've also got so many people lying on the floor and writhing and jumping up. I mean, the the, the work that they did with, with physical levels and movement and uh, it, it was incredible. I I think my favorite thing about this production and it's not just because she wears a sharp suit and looks a little bit like former Australian Australian former Prime Minister Julia Gillard and therefore <laughs> I have a little bit of a crush on her. Uh, I think my favorite <laughs> my favorite thing about the production was Polonia. Yeah. And totally. uh, I think part of the reason why it worked so well was having Polonia be a woman really changes her relationship with Ophelia. And I think that scene, first scene between them, um, where they're still at the, the table, it's just, there's something wonderfully pretty and like kind of teenage daughter with her mum kind of thing with the, with Ophelia. And, and that, yeah, as we were talking about before, that real sense that, that, um, Polonia is not giving this advice to be condescending, but she's giving this advice to Ophelia because she knows she's been there. And, uh, you know, probably later on in the did they boink section, we'll talk about mm. whether, um, <laughs> about whether Polonia has been in this position with, you know, a king, um, as well and, or a, or a future king. And I love the kind of very, very good, very slick spokeswoman kind of vibe that they gave her, like, like very, uh, sharp suited politician, um, who, knows how to perform in front of a camera and really enjoys the sound of her own voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was done really well. Yeah. I think, I mean, one of the things that it really drove home for me too is because you had that mother daughter relationship, there was sort of an implied closeness that you, or potential for closeness that doesn't exist when Polonius is a man. And so when Ophelia comes back and tells Polonia about, you know, 
she just saw Hamlet and he's acting all crazy. You see, it's like Ophelia is reaching out looking for a hug and Polonia never gives her that. Polonia's solution is, well, let's go tell the king. And you see Ophelia like, why are we going to tell the king? Why can't you just give me a hug and tell me that it's okay? And I think this is the first time in this production that I've really seen Polonius as like just interfering in business that isn't his. And that he's kind of like a Don Pedro character. Like, you know, how much, and I never really thought of this before, but like how much of what happens can you blame on Polonius? Like what if he had just given, or she in this case, given Ophelia a hug Instead of been like, well, this is a great opportunity to go talk to the king and start a plot and spy on Hamlet. Instead of just being like, I'm sorry, daughter, that's that's tough. To, to me, the role of uh, Polonius is very much the role of a of a man who ha- has been placed in a kind of a feminizing position. Because if you're not a soldier, and then and if you're a c- career bureaucrat in this world, then you're in a position where your whole job is to try to persuade and influence a king who has absolute power, and you have no actual power of your own. And that's a very, very feminizing position to be in. And I think I really discovered that when I was playing the role of Gonzala in The Tempest. And Gonzala, Gonzalo was kind of a, a comic more uh, um, ethical version of Polonius in my reading. And it was astonishing to me how familiar Gonzalo felt to me as a woman. I really got, uh, I really got that character in ways that surprised me. And so to see a, a woman playing the character of Polonius works really well there too, because it is a very, a very feminine kind of role that Polonius has in relationship to, to, to Claudius. And, but also the, the way that Gertrude is so jealous of Polonius, <laughs> the way that, you know, Claudius has to choose which, which one of those two to listen to. And he chooses the wrong one because Gertrude nails it. She says, you know, I think it's no other but the main, his father's death and our hasty marriage. And instead, Claudius listens to Polonius and Polonius's theory about how he's mad for Ophelia's love and, you know, walks, pushes Gertrude away to go off with, with Polonius or in this case, Polonia to do the plot. And the, the rivalry between those two people for Claudius's approval and his attention is really brought forward by having both of them women. And I just wish that they had done more with that. I thought that this the potential was set up so beautifully. And, and then I found myself waiting for more, waiting for more sexual tension between Claudius and Polonia, waiting for more um, dirty looks between Gertrude and Polonia. But, but maybe we didn't need more. Maybe it, the just the hint of it was enough. I just wanted to add one thing, uh, but then go into something else about uh, sexual tension. With Polonia, uh, I noticed that she got the first laugh from the audience. Hmm. She got, yeah, and I thought that was really interesting. I hadn't seen as comic of a take of of Polonia, uh, and I found that really, really, 
great. Like it was, she was hilarious at, at moments and I, mm-hmm. I really, really loved her. But can we talk about the sexual tension between Polonia and Hamlet? Because. Oh, yes. In the fishmongers. Yeah. And maybe that's a bit can too we, early, but I, I just wanted to put it out there because I wanted to talk about it. Uh, yeah. I, I want to go there. Can I, but I just want to circle back to what you said about Polonia and, and the comedy before we go there, if that's all right. Yeah, yeah for um, sure. Because I, I mean, of course, because we just, I just watched the David Tennant one. I've been comparing, you know, Oliver Floyd Davies' Polonius, which when I saw it, I thought that's just an amazing Polonius. And his is very much like a, a rambling old man. And everyone's kind of like, Oh, dad, off on his, one of his rambles again. And, you know, he just midway through, he starts trailing off and starts going into this tangent that, you know, nobody's really listening to and he doesn't even seem to care. And, and so that's very comic, um, in a way that I think it read differently because Polonia was a woman here that you can't just be like, oh, she's an old, she's just a silly old woman that maybe it read more almost as like deferential. Like mm-hmm. she has to play down her own power almost because she's a woman. I mean, I'm not sure, but I, I think it just, it read very differently and it didn't seem so much as somebody who, you know, couldn't put set, couldn't put a sentence together. And couldn't put his coherent sentence together. And that's partly, I think they, they, they did actually cut some of the rambling. Yeah. yeah. But that's certainly the Polonius that, I mean, Polonius generally and also Oliver, Oliver Ford Davies Polonius, um, was very much this sort of rambling dad jokey figure. And I know that Caitlin in her, her Shakespeare text <laughs> gave herself notes about, um, him making dad jokes at a time like mm-hmm. this. Which, you know, you can't really have Polonia making dad jokes. I've, I've sort of read Polonia's, like, some of the, the rambling that she had to do as just having been involved in, in politics with political operatives. Uh, yeah. it really just felt like, like someone who, yeah, is a spokesperson, is someone who has to talk fast with like media or whatever for a living and just, uh, relishes any opportunity when she's center stage. And so that moment where she's standing in front of Claudius and Gertrude and she's got their attention, it, she doesn't waste it or she, she feels like she needs to kind of extend it. And so she does the kind of, well, how would we define majesty? Uh, mm-hmm. and, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I thought it worked and it just, it works really well, um, to sort of partly explain away some of the rambling stuff that only works for an old man. But, um, I agree. She's used to making yeah. speeches and, and sometimes she just slides into that, that habit. Well, yeah. I, I hadn't thought of it this way, but it's sort of like Polonia the filibuster. <laughs> you just, you know, like if you're dealing with media, you just have to fill time so that you don't have to answer as many difficult questions. Oh, that's yeah. brilliant. Pivoting. Mm-hmm. I am um, the, the hatred that Gertrude had for, oh, not about hatred, but just, massive annoyance that Gertrude had for Polonia was, I think probably the most interesting thing about Gertrude in this production. Um, (laughs) It was was palpable. Like every, and partly because of the, the filming choices that pretty much whenever Polonia was talking and Gertrude was in the room, you got a little bit of a close up and she was doing a face, but yeah, I thought it was really interesting and just added another layer of tension to an already very tense production. Unfortunately, I, I think the staging made it, hard for Gertrude to be interesting in some of the ways that I'm used to seeing her being interesting in, because when you have 
the responsibility to give everybody in the theater a good view of at least one major character's face in every scene, you end up with staging like this where Claudius and Gertrude are almost always at on opposite sides of the stage. And you never, I, I hardly ever saw real, um, intimacy between them. The, the, um, the attraction when, when Claudius tells Laertes that Gertrude is the most important thing in his life, I don't believe him because I haven't been seeing it. Yeah. There's no intimacy with that relationship. I was kind mm -hmm. of, I was really meh about that relationship. I didn't really know what she saw in him. So it, that was a problem for me. And I think, yeah, you're right. You're hitting it on the, the head with, with the staging. It was, it was almost very formal, mm -hmm. their relationship, and, but not intimate at all. Yeah, I think that one of the things that Gertrude suffers from here is a, is a weak Claudius, that Claudius mm -hmm. doesn't seem to have much going on with him. And so, you know, Gertrude doesn't have a lot to play off. Like part of what made Gertrude interesting in the Greg Doran Hamlet is the fact that Claudius had so much going on and she was responding to everything that he was saying. And right. every time he said something that just like tweaked with her, you got something, mm -hmm. but you don't get that here because Claudius is not really doing much. And there's much more going on between Claudius and Polonius, who I think this is another staging thing too, that they're mm -hmm. often physically closer to each other because yes. Polonia is his right-hand woman. And so, you know, we're much more conscious of the sexual tension between Claudius and Polonia, which I think Caitlin and I were like, they definitely boinked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and while I wouldn't say that Claudius and Gertrude seem to hate each other like they did in um, Lindsay Turner's production, there isn't the sense of either – you know, intimacy or like, I mean, it's not clear why they got married in a way that it, it is actually very clear in the Greg Doran where she gets something from him, even though it's problematic. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. When Hamlet says to his mother, you know, don't go to Claudius's bed. My reaction was oh, like she does anyway, you know, <laughs> <laughs> <It's amazing. laughs> I, 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 just, I just didn't think it was going to be hard for her to stay away from him. <laughs> like, well, you thanks know, for giving I, yeah. his help. Yeah. Yeah, Claudius was a bit of a wet noodle in this production. Like he just, I don't know. I I didn't get any. And and maybe I'm I'm wondering from the director's point of view if if they weren't necessarily and you know, I I'm I'm glad that you guys saw the connection between Claudius and Polonia. I didn't see it as much as you guys did, but I was sort of wondering if that that connection just like they worked at finding the intimacy between those two funnily enough, but maybe I saw it more as a camaraderie, but I mean, that was just me, but they should have taken more time to kind of create that intimacy between the couple. I mean, or just touch at least, you know what I mean? Or kiss or something, you know, cause I, yeah. And it was, it was really underdeveloped. Well, and I can see why you just saw the the Claudius Polonia relationship as camaraderie because I was confused. The staging and the costuming, the, the blocking, pardon me, and the costuming suggested it screamed out to me, okay, you know, she's his other wife, and she's been displaced by Gertrude, and she might be pissed off about that, and it fuels her anger, but. But the, the way that they acted towards one another didn't really 
follow through on that. So I saw more more potential than than realization. Can you talk about the costuming? What What do you mean by that? Oh, do you mean okay. that they well, just dress the same, well, well, or yes, or, kind of? When yeah. I looking again at that that first scene at the dinner table where we're meeting most of the principal characters, all of them, I guess. Gertrude and Polonia are the only ones with low necklines. Everybody else is buttoned way up. Mm. And then, and Polonia has that, the low neckline and then the, the very heavy necklace. And then Claudius gets up and makes Gertrude Polonia's twin in a sense, echoing her look by giving her the necklace. And it made me think, oh, he must have given Polonia that necklace. But you know, those, oh, the, those okay. two, and not, not, I don't know if that was necessarily what was implied, but those two women's looks were so different from everybody else. Um, Ophelia's buttoned up and yeah, Hamlet's okay. buttoned up. Yeah. So, um, yeah. and then with Polonia sitting next to Claudius and being a woman, I, I just saw a real triangle being established there um, by the costuming and, and the blocking that, that put those two women together and separated them from everybody else. So I was, yeah, I was expecting that to lead certain directions and I wasn't sure that it did or didn't. Right. Ophelia's costume though, like I, when I first saw her, I was like, she looks like a nun. She looks like a young woman who's decided to become a nun and is in the novitiate. And I actually wrote, how do you solve a problem like Ophelia in my notes? (laughs) 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 It's very strange. Well, yeah, I, I think, yeah. Okay. I was thinking about the ages of the characters and I think by putting like Ophelia is very girlish. I mean, you're calling her nunish and I think that's, that's accurate, but it's also like she just seems to be free of sexuality and, and just because she has that, you know, very little girl buttoned up dress. And I think the other thing that was interesting about this production is sorry, we can go back to Polonia after, but, um, is that one of the things that's always so problematic almost with Hamlet is, you know, to quote Ryan North is that he's, you know, a 40 year old teenager. Mm-hmm. And Maxine Peak is, I think, about like 40 in this, but for whatever reason, maybe because she doesn't, you know, because unlike men, we don't end up bald at 40. Right. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That I feel like if she's going to play, you know, 25, I'm okay with that. She's on stage. I'll, I'll believe that. And probably the fact that she's, you know, s- smaller helps with that. Um, and so I didn't have the problem of, Hamlet, you 40 year old teenager in this, the way mm-hmm. I often do, it was it's sort of like, oh yeah, this, it's fine. But then there's also this thing about Ophelia. She does seem quite young. And then it gets sort of confusing when they decide they're going to pull all of her clothes off. And then they're like implying, okay, so then she did, maybe they did have, I don't know. This is a question. Did they have sex? Because at the beginning, they seem like very virginal and then. But then, you know, she's on his lap and they're making out and it's like, what's going on between these two? Well, to me, I, her costume just set her in the 1950s. So I don't have a problem with a woman of the 1950s dressing like a nun and <laughs> acting like a whore. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I get I get the little girl vibe. Um 
you know, I, I get the sense of lost innocence with her character. I don't think that they had sex. That was just at least my reading of it. I, I saw it as she's going mad and kind of is unraveling. And that's sort of why I felt like she got naked. But that was sort of my take on the situation. Or wishing or just devastated. Or what's that? Sorry. Or wishing that she had had sex. Yeah. Or just feeling, just feeling heartbroken and just, you know, having a tantrum, mm-hmm. a, li- a little girl tantrum, which I mean, that's sort of, that's sort of how I read it. And then it gets so complicated in retrospect by the way they had her dress stand in for her body in act yeah, five. Yeah. And yeah. then, then I'm thinking, okay, is, is there a spiritual theme going on here? Is this production trying to suggest that our body is just clothing for our spirit and that, you know, the, the soul is, is the real self? And that, that seems a little bit unshakespearean. Mm. That seems generous too to me. I wasn't really sure what was going on with that because one thing that they do have in this production that I guess often gets cut is the pastor or priest or, um, oh, yes. saying, you know, like, we shouldn't even give her a burial. So it wasn't fully clear to me if they were just, like, using the dress because they actually, you know, weren't going to bury Ophelia and this is the closest they were going to give or mm-hmm. if the dress was just, like, a stand-in because they did all these weird things with clothing and I was yeah, asked yeah. this about what you yeah. thought about that, which I ha- I'm not sure totally worked. And so I didn't know if it was just sort of part of that. Um, I didn't like it. I've I've seen another Hamlet production where they did that. So did um, the dress or just use the clothing in that um, graveyard scene? Oh, um, yeah. So they kind of did the same thing. And so seeing it this time around, though, I felt that. Yeah, I don't know if it works for me because I get really confused by it. I get I I get confused. Is this supposed to be her body, or are we kind of going? Or did she get? You know, is it, did they take off her dress, obviously, and then throw it in this pile and they're going through all these dead people's lives and they're, mm-hmm. oh, and there's the dress. She's dead, obviously, because her clothes are amongst all these dead people's clothes, which sort of, and I mean, this is far out there. So, you know, just pay, like, just don't mind me, but I, I get an image of like the Holocaust where, you know, oh. there's those piles of clothing and people, all these dead bodies and they're going through the clothing. I don't know if that was the influence here. Right. But I, but that was what it came. It it read for me actually both instances in both productions that I saw. I saw a production here in Toronto where they did the same thing. So far, part of me was like, is that what they're trying to do? Mm. Are they just trying to go through like, yeah. So that was my, I was grappling with that. Mm. And I also was very conscious of the fact that, the color palette of the production, the family was all in these kind of muted blues, browns, yeah. white, grays. And then mm-hmm. everybody else, the players, the the clothes in the graveyard were all colorful and full of vibrant colors. So I was curious to know what you guys thought about that as well. Um, with the clothes thing, I, I just, I spent the whole time that the clothes were on the stage just being like, why are the clothes on the stage? I also spent the whole time after they ripped the mat up, just repeatedly being like, "Why did they rip the mat up?" Is the, I you felt know. the same way. Yeah, yeah. yeah I kept well, I kept waiting for like 
for a, a light bulb moment where it suddenly oh. made sense and it just it just never did with with both things. What I thought was the light bulb moment was when they ripped it off. I said, "Oh, that's a trap door, and they're going to need that in Act Five. Oh, okay, and then yeah. they didn't use it in Act Five. So <laughs> yeah, right. what the hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I yeah, think it goes back strange. to what I thought with the mat rolling up. For me, what the mat rolling up was like. Let's put on. Let's go back to the tradition of theater, and because obviously the players were coming in, I felt like, oh, let's go back to the boards. We're you know we're we're back to this tradition of theater or to play within a play that was sort of where I was going for, but I, I didn't know, you know, because, and also the, the mat at the beginning kind of suggested to me like a gym or yes, a basketball, basketball court. court. Yes. yes. And so for the fight scene at the end, right? Well, they tried to highlight it, right? They highlighted yes. that square, but it wasn't enough for me. You know, I, yeah. I, um, cause I really liked the beginning, the mat at the beginning, cause it, it did actually emphasize the style of crime drama or f- like noirish sort of element to it, especially with the, pol- like the, uh, the police officer kind of, um, the, oh, what are they called? The, um, reflective vest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for me, it kind of put it into this kind of modern context stylistic wise. But then when they ripped it off, I, I don't know. That was my only justification for it was that they were trying to get back to the tradition of theater and that. But then again, I, I feel like, does that work for this story? Or does that just, you know what I mean? Because yeah, I felt like yeah. it just kind of ripped away the style. And I thought, well, I like the style. Why did you take it away? You know, And it's not like Hamlet ripping it up is signifying Hamlet getting more honest or more authentic or getting down to, you know, his boards because he's not. He's just adding on more layer, layers of plotting and deception. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. the other thing about the, the – that was sort of confusing to me is one of the interesting that was happening until then is that, you know, there was – there's sort of the, the square outline on the outside mm-hmm. and then there's like a – a round outline and then another and then a like a rectangle in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what had been happening between then was b- b- from the beginning to that point was the stage effectively got smaller and smaller that they kept going into s- smaller and smaller <sighs> confines. And <sighs> by that scene, it was all all of the action was confined to the inner rectangle. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. It's sort of like those stages closing in on them. And then they ripped it off, and then they were like, "Well, here's the big circle again." And and then know, it seemed to yeah. be like, "Well, well, then, what was the point?" Like it just took it away, took that away. Mm-hmm. Do you think the circle but, was maybe just to be in the round? Like, you know what I mean? I. But again, I agree with you. I I don't know why it had to be a circle in that moment. Uh, yeah. I, anyway, Caitlin, uh, you were going to say something. Oh, just the, the, the whole treating the boards thing was the only thing I could think of really that, that made sense for why that was, it, it was so highlighted as well with Hamlet ripping it up. Mm-hmm. But I think if, if that's what they were going for, they just didn't land it. Like it just, mm-hmm. it, it kept popping up in my mind the whole way through. Yeah. But that point about the stage getting smaller is really interesting. Cause I, yeah, I didn't consciously notice that, but it, it definitely had that feeling of like everything closing in. When they ripped it up is about when the camera angles started changing. And now this only pertains to the film. It doesn't pertain to the audience's experience. But we have very, very few of those um, bird's eye view or what I call them God's eye view shots of the actors in the first half. But in the second half, it's happening a lot. Mm. And I was just wondering what other people thought about that that shift 
and especially in the context, I'll just finish my question and then be quiet because I'm really interested um, in other people's ideas because I don't know what it means. But, you know, at the very beginning, the the ghost doesn't appear at first. We just have those weird sound effects and the actors are looking up and they cut all the lines about how the ghost is like a mole under the ground. And it's very, very clear that in this production, the ghost is up above their heads and he's more of an angel than a ghost in some ways, you know, because he's located up there. So when you establish that that upper realm as being the realm of, you know, the the watching or the judging or the hovering spirits, then when when the cameras start showing us everything happening from that point of view, I just really wonder, is that supposed to be conveying the the this you know that that very ancient classical idea that in a tragedy the gods are dictating events? I don't know. I I think that's the best guess that I would have. I mean, especially since they established that the ghost is coming up from high from the lights mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the lighting uh, suggests that as well. So for me, that totally makes sense that they're kind of a bird's eye view of, of all this tragedy coming down on the stage. I don't know if that helps explain the mat being ripped up or not, though. No, it doesn't explain it for me. I don't know how much of the uh, overhead shots were like. There's a there's a moment after the ghost leaves uh, where there's a god's eye view shot um, down on Hamlet, and that was really I thought that was really effective, kind of like Hamlet yes. saying goodbye up. But yes. um, I don't know how many of the later ones were just look at how cool and symmetrical our <laughs> stage is. Um, yeah, just <laughs> I mean, for flourish or something. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would. I mean, values. I those early ones were mostly there so that you could see the lights um, because they had those lights at all these different levels and they sort of looked like stars. And I think you would have gotten, you would have been able to see that just because it's a very vertical, um, you would have been able to see that if you were in the theater, but the only way for them to show us that really and show us the stage was to do it from above. And that's sort of going into the idea that something that Julie Taymor said about her much, uh, her Midsummer Night's Dream is that, you know, theater is a vertical art form and cinema is a, horizontal one and i think this was their attempt to compensate for that yeah and i did notice that like it does seem to be a very big theater um like it's not like the young Vic. like they seem to have balconies um it seems to be like there are people that there might actually be people like that high up i mean obviously not right on top obviously not right on top of the stage but it did seem to look like there were seats that would have been you know like you would have you know like in the globe theater where you would have mm. been high enough to get something of a a bird's eye view and so i honestly didn't notice that it was more at one point than another and i didn't i didn't have a problem with it because i saw at some point i was like oh there are people up there so i thought that was just trying to give us okay. the idea of what it would i was like looking for them but i didn't see them so I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that that that's helpful i mean certainly the building has really high ceilings so it would be weird mm-hmm. if there weren't seats there Good point. And that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. The next part of the discussion will be available to download on Friday. To keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. 
show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com. Thank you.